Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this time around, it's just me. No guest this week, sorry, but I'm sneaking in one last little mini-episode before the year ends. In just a few days, it'll be 2022, with a whole new raft of dark and delightful fictions to consume us, whilst we endure the latest spin of the cosmic roulette wheel of existential nightmares. (laughs) What's it going to be? Aliens? Triffids, wide-scale rifts in the ontological stability of the universe. My money is on 2022 being the year that our octopoid overlords finally rise from the oceans to enslave us. So, how better to enjoy what little time we have left than by indulging another podcaster, me, as I throw my thoughts on the books of the year out into the ether. No one asked for them. You almost certainly have done nothing to deserve them, but here are some opinions anyway. (laughs) To be clear, these are just my thoughts though, and should only be respected as such. No more, no less. 2021, as we keep pointing out, has been an absolutely stellar year for dark fiction. This is just my list of the 10 best books I've read this year. I'm confining my choices to books that I've actually read, obviously. They have to have been released in 2021, which cuts a good few excellent titles out of the running. And I'm basing the the ranking almost entirely on just how much I enjoyed them. There are plenty of fantastic books I haven't had chance to read, and this list shouldn't be in any way considered as an objective review of the year. To be honest, it would almost certainly be a different list if I recorded it tomorrow, because these things are unavoidably fleeting and fickle. And, seeing as it's just me, we can dispense with some formality. I'm recording this with an epic hangover. I've had it since this morning, and it's now 8pm in the UK. I have no script, I may meander, I may contradict, I may even court controversy, who knows. And that scuttling noise you may hear from time to time, it's not some hirsute demon from the bowels of an M.R. James story. It's my dog, Ted, who is refusing to leave my office. Fair enough? Good. Let's go. Here we go. One more time before we crawl, shaken but not shattered, into a new year. Let's whisper together, just you and I. Let's talk scared. So, at number 10 in my list of the best books I've read in 2021, we've got The Plague Letters by V.L. Valentine. It's an unexpected start to the list, to be honest, because at the time of reading, I was really enjoying it, but it felt like something that was light and, in its own weird, dark way, quite quite frothy and quite fun. And though I thought it was great, I didn't think it would have stuck around in this list to the end of the year. But it's lingered in my mind for a couple of reasons. One, it's an ingenious idea. It's a murder mystery set amongst the plague pits and panic of London in 1665, the year that disease brought the city to its knees. And and that hits a certain way during Covid, obviously. Um, It it was actually quite interesting to read it because it shows how little things have changed, both structurally and psychologically, in the centuries since. Uh, But what a great idea for a book, you know, a murder amongst a pandemic. Could you even... Would you even notice it was taking place? It's just it's just a great little quirky spin on the murder mystery. And I like historical murder mysteries. I think they're quite quite a fun thing. I remember the previous year, Stu, Stu Turton's The Devil and the Dark Water 
did something similar, um, and I really enjoyed it. The book's also wonderfully funny as well as bleak. Funny in a dark way that perhaps only oddballs like us would appreciate. There's kind of It's an odd comparison, this, but if you've watched the film Don't Look Up on Netflix in the last week, there are lots of similarities. It's obviously technologically and historically centuries apart, but that same idea of disinformation and... You know that 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 tension in culture and in how to respond to a crisis—it's all there. It's a similar kind of satire. It's got a wonderful sense of Dickensian grotesquerie, both in the events and the characters who are all larger than life, yet absurdly drawn from real life. And it's got a great sense of hideous detail in the medical treatments available. There's a lot about medical stuff, and and Vicky Valentine, who wrote it, is a, a science and medical writer. Um, so she knows her stuff. I mean, when, when I spoke to her, we talked about how she'd been in Africa kind of trying to sort out the Ebola problem. So, yeah, she knows her stuff. But she does a great job with the ignorance and the hubris of the various medical organisations competing to find a cure. Again, it it's not a million miles away from what's happened in the last two years. But, yeah, anyway, that's, it's a great start. The Plague Letters by V.L. Valentine. Not a book that's going to horrify you in the way that a typical horror book would. Um, but but a lot of fun, and it's a joy to read. At number nine, things couldn't be more different. Nothing funny about In That Endlessness, Our End by Gemma Files. It's a short story collection of 15 tales, all of them effective in one way or another. I mean, you've got everything from a pandemic of people literally bursting out from inside people, all the way to this story about a flying Latvian vampire bat demon that haunts the ancestors of this migrant family in Canada. Now, if that sounds whimsical and weird, it is, but it's also genuinely frightening. Each of these tales is disquieting and disturbing and distressing. And I've mentioned before how much this book scared me. I talked on on a Patreon podcast I did about... Um, the books that have really scared me in my life. This book made that all-time list as well as the, the list of this year. Uh, it, for me, the entire collection, and Gemma Files' work in general, confronts this root concept in horror, which is the conceit that there is some knowledge that you cannot unlearn, and that once you know it, it can harm you, or at least change your life and at a fundamental level. Several of these tales take on that concept, and to really genuinely quite frightening ways. If you're like me and you think that, you know, a thought can be damaging, if you're like me and you think, you know, God, my anxieties are laid open to, to stimulus that could give, give them something to latch onto and run with, then this book will work on your nerve endings. It, For example, it deals heavily with horror around sleep, and that strange mental state on the on the cusp between sleep and, and, and wakefulness. Um, in that Patreon episode, I talked about how much and why that really scares me, and, and, and these stories play right along that central nervous system. There is no one else distilling my personal fears into fiction like Gemma Files. I sometimes think she's going through my bins and my posts just to tailor these horror tales to me, Obviously, that means it may not work for everyone, but the writing's fantastic. It's such a depth of imagination and breadth of storytelling technique, but it's, they've all got this cancerous core of genuine fright 
It's an impressive piece of work that's In That Endlessness, Our End by Gemma Files. Again, changing tack totally. At number eight, we're moving from true terror to, let's call it optimistic horror in Ghoul and the Cape by Josh Malaman. So Josh, friend of the show, you know, he's been on a couple of times now. He'll be back every few weeks with his latest novel, no doubt. He had two books out this year, three actually, if you include Pearl, but only two featured on the show. And that was Goblin, his collection of novellas all set in the same uncanny town. I enjoyed that massively. But Ghoul and the Cape came out in October and it took me on a journey. All I can say, in our conversation, Josh and I talked about how that book reminded me of Lord of the Rings, both in the sense of it being an optimistic tale that's about friendship and bonds and brotherhood and romance and adventure and and all those beautiful things. Um, Actually, a a friend of the show, Ali Malenenko, gave me the term hope punk to describe that exact phenomena. And and I I really enjoy that, hope punk. So yeah, it's like Lord of the Rings for that, but also because it's a true reading experience. You know, Lord of the Rings is one of those books that when you read it, you don't forget having read it. You don't forget the physical process of reading it. And it's the same with Ghoul and the Cape. I mean, it. It's 700 pages long, massive. The book weighs over four pounds. So quite quite literally, you can't physically forget bloody reading it. My arms were genuinely tense afterwards. But it goes through every genre imaginable. It goes through all different historical periods from the present day all the way back to the 19th century. It's got these little miniature like embedded short stories that that aren't entirely self-contained tales, but actually add to this coalescing narrative. And overall, it's got a fantastic sense of optimism at a time when that is sorely needed. Ghoul and the Cape perfectly captures this, something that I thought was particular to my own taste. It's this sense of unabashed, unashamed, earnest romance amongst all the absurdity and irony of contemporary fiction. That's something quite breathtaking. It gets very weird at times, and and it has infuriated, exhausted, frankly, bewildered me. But in hindsight, that was part of the experience as well. You know, it it cannot be plain sailing all the way through a book of this magnitude and this scope, and, and I wouldn't want it to be. So go into it expecting a roller coaster with ups and downs, but but do go into it. If it was a more conventional tale, it, it may have placed higher on, on this list, to be honest, because the writing is so good that a more conventional tale may have even won me over even more. But then again, if it was a more conventional tale, it wouldn't have been the same truly unique book. Google and the Caper is it's a story for our age, both politically because of what it's about, but also because it's a much-needed shot in the arm to remind us that that life is still good amongst all the shit. I will just say before we move on, I made a big deal when it came out and on the episode of really pushing people to go and buy it because it's a limited edition thing from Earthling Press and I felt like everyone should have the chance to read this book if they want to. I didn't realise when I was saying that that it cost $75. So if you guys thought I was just saying, oh, yeah, go buy this $75 book as if it was nothing. That's not me. 
I understand that is a serious purchase. And I hope it gets a wider release in future because everyone should read this book. And that's Ghoul and the Cape by Josh Malaman. At seven, another seriously epic book. And it's called The Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendig. It was a big release this back in the summer, one of the biggest releases. It was actually the book I was most looking forward to reading this time last year. And, well, for good reason, because I've talked a lot about horror with heart on the show. If you listen, you know it's a a drum I keep banging. How we're moving from this 20-year fixation with irony, both back and forwards to a more earnest register, more warm-hearted horror that's about celebrating the good sides of humanity as much as the evil that threatens it. And there are a few books that inspired that train of thought, but none more so than Chuck Wendig's The Book of Accidents. At its basic level, it's a story about a family who move, you know, that typical tale, they move to a new house and they find unnatural, uncanny, frightening things in the locality. And in in that way, it has a direct relationship to the 80s paperback epics, down to the sheer size of the book, I think it's about 640 pages, but also it's elaborate structure. For example, it's got two prologues at a time when prologues are really not in fashion. It feels like a Stephen King book in all that apparatus, all those epilogues, prologues, aphorisms, these little quotes to start chapters, the very fact that I think each each chapter title is a, is a reference to, to song lyrics or, or things like that, or reference to, to certain books. And yeah, it, it feels very much of its own culture. But if it is unavoidably written in the tradition of King and Barker and their imitators. It is no imitator itself. There is a tone all of Wendig's own. For a start, it's righteously angry about certain political issues, really doesn't pull its punches with that. And it feels very present, as I say, in its culture, in its politics, in its social architecture, much more than some kind of retro exercise. It's heartwarming and heartbreaking and it has these layers of mythology and a sense of scale well beyond the things that Chuck has actually put on the page. For example, there's a whole section that takes place in this this old abandoned mine where someone encounters a creature. And that could be a novel in itself. I want to know more about just that slice of lore, let alone the multiple universes, let alone the serial killer that may be haunting the, the, the local town. There's so much going on. And I, I hope that Chuck continues to shape this world because I want to read more about it. If you want to read a book that is, I suppose, a blending of the the dark fantasy of something like Weave World, blended with the family drama of Pet Cemetery, then Chuck Wendig's The Book of Accidents is exactly that book. But it's also much more. People love it. I loved it. It's my number seven pick for the year. And here we're going to number six with My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. Now, I think some people may be surprised this book isn't higher on the list because you've heard me talk at length, ad nauseum, about what I think of Stephen Graham Jones, how I think he is a true modern master. Sadie Hartman, you know, aka Mother Horror, was saying just the same, Emily Yu saying just the same on the podcast last week. And that's not false. I do think the man is probably the most important voice in contemporary horror fiction. Perhaps... Paul Tremplay gives him a run for his money, but yeah, he's up there. 
Remember though, this is a top 10 list. So at number six, that's already quite a high ranking considering I've read over 70 books this year. But it's a book of two halves. And it works as the perfect illustration of the theory I just said, that we are shifting from irony to earnestness. And it, it basically encapsulates that transition in one book. Because it starts off as this slow-burning, very, very genre-savvy piece of what feels like fan service. We have this protagonist who's obsessed and immersed in the world of slasher horror. And everything is a reference. Everything's a double reference. Everything's a, an in-joke. It feels like a collection of Easter eggs with a great character and a great setting. But for the first 200 pages, I just was not won over. Certainly not after the, the masterpiece that was The Only Good Indians. But then, but then, at the halfway point, it turns. And it becomes this incredibly moving treatise or dramatization or, or whatever on on trauma and i know i overuse that word but in this case it's valid on on trauma and abuse and patriarchy and inequality and all these fucking infuriating things that this this young girl is forced to endure and which she does endure by using this shield of, of slasher horror so it's a meta exercise that becomes a mega exercise in that it's about so much more than it seems to be in the second half. And the greatest trick that Stephen plays is segueing from one type of storytelling to the other without derailing the plot or without exposing the machinery of his writing. The final hundred pages or so may be, probably are, the most thrillingly executed sequence I've read for years. Without really realising it, you are picked up by the plot, kind of by the scruff of the neck, and just dragged through this sequence of events that they just don't give you time to breathe. And it all comes together in this wonderful set piece that resolves so many things, shakes the kind of foundation of what you think the rules of this universe are. And then, as if that's not enough, there is a coda that broke my heart. And I'll say no more, except there is a scene with a bear and her cubs that manages to work as both a perfect summation of Jade's story and a beautiful image all of its own. It, it might be the single best piece of writing Stephen Graham Jones has, has pulled off. I'm interested to see what he does with the sequels. You may have heard my reservations in the last episode, but if anyone can pull off sequels to this story, if anyone can make this story worthwhile in its continued iterations, it's Stephen Graham Jones, because as I said then, I don't think he writes anything if his heart's not in it, and his heart was very much in My Heart is a Chainsaw. So yeah, that's my number six pick. Number five, halfway there. This one is The Other Black Girl by Zakia Delila Harris. Now this one may not even be considered horror. It's a satire. Is it really horror? You know what? I don't care. It's about horrific things, whether they are too small and prosaic to be considered horror. It's a conversation I'm not really asked about having. This book is, you know what, I'm going to drop the critical acumen. It's just brilliant. 
it, I have these issues with comparisons to the film Get Out. I've said a few times that I feel like it's a cheap shorthand that, that puts any kind of story about prejudice and diversity in too small a box. But in this case, it actually fits because the, the book has a clear but very very complex social commentary and, and a wonderful or or wonderfully horrid, at least, metaphor for white privilege and the exploitation of black culture and black bodies. It's very similar to Get Out in that regard. It's about, quite simply, a, a young African-American woman who works in a publishing house. She's the only black employee in this very white, very genteel, very statesman-like publishing house. She's the only black person there, and she is treated as kind of a out of an inconvenience or as a tool all the time until another young black woman starts working there. And then the horror begins. And it's kind of an office-based piece of fiction that, that kind of plays on office politics but takes them in odd directions. And you're never quite sure where the horror is supposed to lie. Is it in these microaggressions or is it in the slightly more speculative nature of what's going on? I won't spoil that for you. It taught me a lot without ever feeling like it was an exercise in education. Because I don't like books that are like that. I read it understanding that the book wasn't written for me and nor should it be. But I never felt like it was written to exclude me either. It, it has an idiom of its own. It, it's all about black culture and it makes no apology for that. Me and Zakia talked about this. Did she feel a pressure to be less opaque to be more inclusive and, and she said no quite rightly why should she be because after all that actual pressure to do that is what the book's satirizing um it evokes horror from awkwardness both from the events themselves and as a white male reader from the awareness that i am complicit however indirectly in those events it reads like black mirror for the black lives matter movement or the Twilight Zone given a sharp political update. It's got fantastic characterization. Nella, the protagonist, is fully rounded. She's never anything but a complicated heroine. And her colleagues at the publishing house are, well, they step close enough to comic book villainy to be amusing and entertaining, but they're never so grandiose that they break this atmosphere of subtle, creeping dread. It's a thing that people often say, I say it too much, you know, this is a book everyone should read. But in this case, I do think the world would be a better place if more people read The Other Black Girl. Not to be educated in some crude way, but to be entertained and to therefore, in the process of being entertained, open themselves up to having a bit more empathy, a bit more interest and understanding for otherness and diversity. And to perhaps get to grips with the idea that black people are not responsible for explaining their lives or their stories to white people. That's my number five pick, The Other Black Girl by Zakia Dalila Harris. I don't care if you think it's horror or not. At number four, The Spirit Engineer by A.J. West. This is the most recent read on this list. I, I read it just a few weeks ago. And it's a tale of spiritualism, science and sexuality in early 20th century Ireland. It's basically about a, a man, 
William Crawford, who I later found out really existed, as did most of the characters in this book. And he is a man who has no belief in the supernatural, even as spiritualism you know, kind of takes hold of the nation, as it did back then. Um, and he's, for various reasons, he is tasked with putting together a scientific approach to prove or disprove spiritualism. He, he meets a, a medium who, uh, who shows him certain things to do with his own life. And in the process, it ends up being about a man who is just in search of something to believe in. And he, he moves from a fervent belief in science, hence the engineer of the title. He, he is an academic, he's an engineering professor. And he moves across into a similar fervent belief in the spiritual. But that journey comes with all kinds of black-hearted consequences. William Crawford is an awful man. The author and I, AJ, disagreed a little on this because he had more tolerance for him than I did. I think he's a truly despicable character, but he's fun as hell to read about. He's my favourite character of the year, I think. And, and what's great is what starts off being really funny in a sort of dark way turns into something much more tragic and much more harrowing as, as he starts to lose his grip on his own sense of self and his own sense of stability in the world and starts to exert an unhealthy influence on on those around him. It's pervy and gross in a way that is supremely entertaining, but also genuinely creepy as the story goes on. Lots of women being tied up, um, ostensibly to create a you know a scientific environment, but more often because there's this pseudo-sexual psychological thing that creeps in to do with power and misogyny and all that kinds of stuff yeah it, it, it makes you kind of want to need to have a wash when you read about it but it seems weird to say in a good way but you know what i mean it has this great twist or actually reveal maybe a better word that is all the more impressive as it's based on a true story just like I said about the plague letters, it has this Dickensian grotesquerie. And again, it's got larger-than-life characters who are actually drawn from real life. And I'm so impressed by that. The ability to take somebody who really lived and inject them with this kind of colourful characterization, without kind of, you know, stepping all over the, the, the real existence. It, it's a real balancing act that AJ pulls off. I've read a lot of stuff set in this time period and about these topics, not least The Haunt of Alma Fielding by Kate Summerscale last year. But AJ's novelisation feels really peculiar in the best way, and I'm keen to see what he does next. He said that he's moving away from ghost stories and, and the overtly creepy, but I hope he stays on the dark side, because he's got this gift for crafting tales about horrid people that nevertheless keep you engaged. Yeah, The Spirit Engineer by A.J. West. It was a real surprise, dark treat at the end of the year. And it slid in there at number four. Okay, as we get into the top three, at this point, the order of things gets really hard. So I've swapped number three and number two around so many times. I've finally settled on an order, but I think tomorrow this will be different, and then different again the day after. I mean, it's so hard to pick between these two books. They're both books that I have unreservedly loved and praised since I read them, but number three 
is Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar. So if you haven't listened to that episode with Richard or listened to last week's episode where I talked about it, I'll just briefly explain the premise again because it's it's notable. The idea is that you are reading a biographical memoir by Richard Chismar. The protagonist is called Richard Chismar and most of his story is true. It's about Richard Chismar's adolescence in small town, I think it's Illinois, although don't quote me on that. But what he's done is he's taken this largely verite tale of his own childhood and injected a serial killer. I mean, that is genius, right? So it's about, he moves back after college to this small town to try and become a writer. He's going to get married. He moves back in with his mom and dad. And this guy, the, the boogeyman, starts killing young girls in the vicinity. And Richard takes it upon himself to investigate this. It's a whole web of illusion and it's delicious. That part of it, the intricate structure, is just a delight. That's not why it's so high on my list. When Rich came on the show, I call him Rich because we're we're friends. (laughs) When he came on the show, we talked about the books that we loved as kids and as young adults and that we still love. And we realised that we had incredibly similar tastes and incredibly similar formative reading experiences. Obviously, King plays a part there. Rich has written books with King. I've just got the latest, the final in the Gwendy series. So he's written things with King. But he also loves Bradbury and Dan Simmons and Robert McCammon's Boy's Life. And he gave me the gift of this phrase, golden-hued horror. That's a gift because I've been searching for a way to articulate what I love in fiction for all these years. And that that term nails it. That sense of nostalgia and adventure and almost romance for the past pitted against horror. I love it. And Chasing the Boogeyman is full of that golden hue. It's painted in it. And, And like I've said in previous comments, horror is going back to being about something bigger and grander than itself. It's going back to being a celebration of all the things in life that aren't horror. And that's the real point of horror fiction in my eyes. Not to dwell on the awful and the vicious and the wrong, as fun as that can be, but to use those things to shine a light on their own opposite, to make the point that horror is a thing to be opposed, to be fought, to be conquered. And that's why horror is, again, for me, such a rewarding, consolatory genre. It tells you that even the worst things in life can be overcome. And Chasing the Boogeyman does that. It tells you that even with a serial killer in your midst, summer amongst friends and people you love is a wonderful time. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, horrible stuff goes down. There's a man killing young girls. And it doesn't pull away from that. It doesn't dilute that. It faces that head on. But not in a way that's exploitative. Not in a way that's salacious. In a way that kind of says, that monster over there is only ever half the story. So yeah, Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar. Okay, heading into number two. And I do think if you've been following this show's Twitter feed closely, you may have some clue of who the last two books are. But at number two, I've got Last One at the Party by Bethany Clift. 
This is the second pandemic book on the list, along with The Plague Letters, but this one is far more contemporary. And even though the disease is entirely fictional, I mean, it kills every single person except the titular last one at the party. Even though it's fictional, the world that Beth depicts is no less frightening for that. Everything that happens in the opening pages as the world falls seems terrifyingly reminiscent of what we've all just been through. It's just dialed up to 11, if that makes sense. And there's a kind of comedic tragedy to the way that people deal with the outbreak and the fall of society. It's this fatalism that is both funny and poignant, heartbreaking and truly frightening. This disease doesn't exist, but I thought I had it for about three days. And this is how the world would end, in disbelief and banter and panic, not heroism. Again, going back to Don't Look Up, the latest movie on Netflix, it's how the world would end. We'd all just fucking disagree with each other until we were all dead. And that lack of heroism is key to the story. Because Beth's unnamed protagonist, this last woman alive, is a wonderful creation. Again, she's a deeply flawed human being, and I found that I like reading about them. She's selfish and largely useless and entitled and, and a bit moany. But she goes on this arc that is never wholly redemptive, but it's at least self-actualizing. She becomes the best possible version of herself for the circumstances. And then... She meets the dog, Lucky, and I committed to this story like nothing you've ever seen. Now, you'll have heard me mention a few times, I think, about how Beth does awful things to animals in this story. There is one scene, I'll say it again, in a zoo with some chimpanzees that I'm saying right now is hands down the most disturbing thing I've read this year. This in a book which doesn't really purport to be a horror novel. You know, all the marketing is about how, about how this is the apocalypse meets Sex in the City. It, it, it looks like the frothiest thing ever, and it contains the most disturbing thing I've read. I felt physically ill after reading it, not because I was sickened in a physical way, but because my empathy for these poor creatures was painful. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are already bored by my endless love for my dog, Ted. But if you are, frankly, I don't care. You get a free podcast every week. You can take some canine adoration with it. So the minute Lucky is introducing this story, and I've already seen Beth do awful things to animals, I became very invested in this dog surviving. And I won't say what happens, but when I finished the book, about 3am, because it was that much of a propulsive read, I had to finish it, I closed the book, I sat up in bed and I looked at what was then my, I think, three-month-old puppy fast asleep on the floor and I burst into tears. Not for the first or last time did I cry at a book this year, but that time was certainly the most memorable. And, you know, tears can be as good as screams sometimes when it comes to horror fiction. And I recommend you all read Last One at the Party by Bethany Clift. It's my second favourite book of the year, but that seems weirdly damning considering how much I loved it. And it's a book that I was loath to recommend early on because there's a lot going on in people's lives, and there still is. But if you feel a little bit more inured against the pandemic now, 
then read this book because it's frankly fucking brilliant. Which brings me, finally, after roughly 25 minutes of me waxing lyrical and getting very emotive, to the number one book I've read in 2021. Ironically, the first book I read in 2021. And it's The Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean. All year, I've been waiting for a book to kick this off the number one spot, and nothing has. It's probably the best book I've read in the last five years, let alone this one. I can't think of anything better. It got nowhere near the applause and recognition that it should. That's not to say it went unnoticed. People loved it, but a book this good should have won all the awards. It should have been the talk of literary salons around the world. The fact this book wasn't on the Booker Prize list, let alone winning it, makes a mockery of the Booker Prize. The plot is quite simple. Essentially, we have our protagonist and narrator, Jane, whose real Vietnamese name is, I think, Than Dao is how I would pronounce it. Forgive me if I'm wrong. We'll call her Jane for ease. She has been kept captive at this point for years by a man called Leonard, who has her trapped in his farmhouse in the east of England, in this haunting landscape that I I have visited. It's a landscape of fens and waterways and horizons that my dad would say, let you watch your dog run away for three days. It's a a haunting place. and, And Jane is basically a sexual captive. So yeah, trigger warnings are plenty. And the story is a slim, sharp telling of her survival. I won't say her escape because that I'd be saying, wouldn't it? Maybe not. But her survival, her endurance. And three things come together to create something truly special. The landscape that I mentioned is is unique and, and weirdly horrific. Then you've got Len's voice, Len, her captor. He has this voice that is all idiom. And, and being from the north of England, not a million miles away, I, I understand that dialect and I get the significance of the words he uses. And then you've got Jane's or, or Thandau's quiet bravery and her endurance and her, her resistance to what would make us all give up. And those three things come together in this just machine-tooled tale of suspense. I literally read it in two sittings. I know people say that stuff a lot. I actually did. More to the point, my mum, who's not a big reader, read it in two sittings. It's easily compared to other books. So there's an injury to Jane's leg that seems wholly reminiscent of misery, right? She's forced to stay in bed because Len does a horrendous thing to her. Feels like Annie Shel- uh, feels like Annie Wilkes and Paul Sheldon. Also, there's this understated, discreet references to the sexual motive that underpins all this. And that... That subtlety feels very similar to Emma Donoghue's room. But Will said neither book had entered in, but Will said neither book had really factored into his creative process whilst he was writing. Now that feels hard to believe. I'm not saying Will is a liar by any means, obviously, but it feels that like you couldn't write this book and not be aware of those. But it doesn't really matter because the last thing to burn is entirely its own thing. Will conjures such menace from these tiny details. The food they eat, the way Len strokes Jane's hair and says these things like, it's not a bad life, is it? 
even the weather is this grim, dank cage. There's one mention of a hand towel being taken into a cellar that still makes me tense my abdominal muscles a year after reading it. I don't know what else to say about how good this book is. It's so rare you read a, a book that, that hits you in this way. I even forgave a late plot contrivance because everything else that went before it was just so good. I won't say it's better than Misery because it's hard to be better than Stephen King's most technically ingenious novel. Of course it is. But The Last Thing to Burn is as good. And for me, that is saying quite something. Will Dean, The Last Thing to Burn, it's easily the best book I read in 2021, and I cannot recommend you read it enough. So I found it interesting that a good portion of that list, including the entire top three, and not obviously or emphatically horror novels. And I do wonder sometimes if I'm going to lose some cred with all this talk of wholesomeness and heart and horror being about the good things in life. I'm not worried because I stand by my argument. And, and we all know by now this show isn't really about horror, at least not every week. But it is important that you you don't think I've made up my mind with what I like. I am open to all suggestions and every book I start for the first time I'm ready to love. I like a good scare as much as the next person. I enjoy fictional despair and blood and gore and terrible things happening to good people. As long as it's well done and has something to say about something. And all of these books on my list definitely did. There are so many more books I could have mentioned. Early in the year I remember saying it would have to be an incredible 12 months for Cat Ward's Last House on Needless Street not to feature in this list. Well, it has been such a year. That's no offence to Cat. Needless Street is fantastic, but I loved these books more. Clay McLeod Chapman's Whisper Down the Lane was an evil little gem. Ronald Malfi's Come With Me was a wonderful crime and horror story suffused with, with a really excellent depiction of, of realistic grief. Tina Baker's Call Me Mummy and Danny Trasoni's The Ancestor would have both been serious contenders if they'd been published this year rather than 2020. And Christ, how can we forget Eric LaRocca's Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke or Joel Lansdale's Moon Lake? I mean, what a year it's been. Like I say, if I wrote this list again next week, it could be entirely different. But this is just a snapshot of my reading from 2021. It's the way I've coped as the shit continues to splatter the fan through books. Books have got me through. Tell me, what horrid demonic comforts have you turned to in this, our second plague year? Tell me, because I'm genuinely interested. As much as I found solace in reading horror this year, I found even more in talking with you, the listeners, about it. It's the best part of this unpaid job that I've created for myself. So get in touch. Tell me your own top 10 or your top three or your top 50, whatever. Get in touch. Tell me also what you're looking forward to in the new year. You can reach me, as always, at TalkScaredPod on Twitter, Instagram or even TikTok. And I will get back to making kind of furiously unenthusiastic content for TikTok soon. 
or you can email me directly at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com because you know I'm always thrilled to get an email from listeners. Lastly, if you've come this far with Talking Scared and haven't yet left a review, or if it's your first episode and you want to leave a review, please do. I really, really appreciate it. It makes all the difference in getting this show promoted because I want to get on lists next year. I want to get on lists of good horror podcasts and then get awards and then the moon. Yeah, I basically want to take over the horror world and it starts with more people knowing about the show. So you can review the show on Apple Podcasts or a number of other podcast platforms and tell your friends. And if you want more, if you want more from me, including episode two in my ongoing series on the history of horror with Professor Roger Luckhurst, you can sign up for Patreon. It's a few dollars a month for all kinds of extra content and it also helps keep this show going. And you can sign up simply through the link in the show notes or by going to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. A massive thank you to everyone who has supported, emailed, tweeted, shared or just been nice to me in some way. It's been a blast, guys. Next week, I'm taking the week off. Now... Before you complain, that's the first break since this show began back in September 2020. It's been 73 episodes in a row, and you'll probably forgive me taking the week. When I'm back, though, it's a biggie. John Connolly, the author of the Charlie Parker novels, my favourite series fiction of all time, and soon to be, perhaps, the subject of a new strand for this podcast. John Connolly is with us. I managed to sneak in an interview between all of the gushing sycophancy, and it turns out he's an absolute delight. And after that, I'll be talking to Christy Demista, whose new novel, Such a Pretty Smile, is an absolute banger. In her bio, Christy says that she spends all of her time telling people how to pronounce her name, so if I've already done that wrong, I apologise. But yeah, Such a Pretty Smile is out January 18th. And I'm already saying right now, everyone should read this book. And that's based on me just having read the first half. So yeah, 2022 is kicking off in serious style. I hope this show goes from strength to strength next year. I hope you come with me. We can try some new things, see what works, but always keep a focus on scary things written on paper. It's been a pleasure bringing this show to you every week. And I hope we're all in next week with Trump in jail, Boris Johnson locked in a cupboard somewhere and with COVID diminishing in the rear view. Have a great new year, friends. Stay safe, dance, drink, love your people, read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>